Hello and welcome to The Evocative Project. My name's Blake Bradford and I'm so happy to have you here today. The Evocative Project is all about building confidence from within, about having and knowing your why. Why you're doing what you're doing and with this project through my stories, co-hosts and guests, we're going to teach you the skills that you need to take on life and fulfill it with purpose. Hey guys, it's your boy B from Evocative. And thank you so much for jumping on to another brilliant episode of the Evocative Project. And this week's guest, Joel Johnson, has been in my life for over a decade now. When I was first introduced to Joel, I was, I'm going to say, 14 years old as a Junior Reds Academy rugby union player. Um, he was my coach, and I would certainly say he was my mentor through some of that rugby union career in my life and into early adulthood. So it's been incredible to watch Joel's journey and he, as he articulates throughout his story, it's incredible for me to learn about someone that once was just your coach um, to see what he actually was going through in his life. And I think it's a really beautiful message for a lot of us that have had, you know, people that we've looked up to or coaches or role models in our life that their their life was so much more before we met them. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to touch on those stories and share those stories with you guys today. And Joel's progression through his career really meant he had to learn how to become an active listener, learn how he could interact with communities such as Aboriginal communities, as the gay and lesbian communities, um, people with disabilities in their communities and bring those communities into a corporate light and their opinions and their thoughts and their objections and their suggestions and be able to articulate that meant that Joel was incredible and became a very, very good active listener, which we talk about quite a lot throughout the course of this project. And I'm very excited to bring Joel to the Evocative Project, certainly because it's his first episode and first ever podcast host uh, encounter. And I'm very proud to say Joel is one of my good friends and very proud of the things that I've learned today through this episode that Joel has done for not only me, but certainly for a very, very large community of people across the Eastern Seaboard of Australia and certainly even abroad as well. So please pay great attention to what Joel talks about today. Uh, a strong message that I took away, which I'll give you right here before we dive into this episode is active listening. It is listening equals heard equals happy. And to remove the emotions from conversation as well as the need to be right. So that was a big takeaway I got from this episode and I'm excited to see what you take away from this episode as well where you can leave your comments and messages in our inbox and certainly in the comments of this thread. So without any more introduction, please, please welcome Joel Johnson into the Evocative Project. Chew.
We are here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Joel Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on the Evocative Project. No worries, Blake. My pleasure. Good to um, continue a connection that's been um, around for, well, a decade now, I think. Would have been that we first come across a 14-year-old Blake Bradford and McCoy. So. I would think so, yeah. So without uh, much, oh, well, with a bit of introduction to you, it's, I, yeah, like you just said, 14 or 15 years old, schoolboys rugby union. Um, you become my coach and a bit of a mentor and um, <clears throat> you were part of our Reds Academy. And I guess when you're 14 or 15 year old, you don't really understand the respect hierarchy so much, but you certainly know who um, your role models are and that sort of stuff in that sort of space. And um, certainly looked up to you in that period of my life and, it's cool to see that the connections followed through. And I mean, by way of um, bio and introduction, I was looking at some of your LinkedIn profile and how you sort of described yourself there, which is, I thought was great and be a great way to, you know, really highlight the great things that you've done in your life. And one thing that stood out to me was some of the um, recognitions and programs and initiatives that you've been involved in. Um, such as you were the winner of the Inclusive Service Award with Sporting Wheelies and Disabled Association, which is incredible. Um, you were a finalist at the Queensland Premier Reconciliation Awards, um, Queensland Multicultural Award and Lord, Lord Mayor's Award. Um, also being guest speakers at Queensland Disability Conferences, Bond University, um, Queensland Rugby Union Reconciliation Action Plans. Um, but what really shone out to me was our conversation the other day, you sent me a message and you said, um, really, you know, really proud of everything you're doing with the space of, you know, showcasing your why and living your why and how you found that you've really developed your life around your why and your passions. And it was a, um, it's really humbling moment for me, but then it was great to get on the phone with you and have a chat about what you're doing and where you've sort of ventured since when I first met you um, to start your own family and then to develop in this timeline of helping communities, especially the Indigenous communities and sporting communities, and now with, uh, I guess, one of the biggest global rail productions happening in the world um, with Inland Rail. It's really cool to see how you've developed as a person as well in that time, and I think we spoke about that on the phone briefly. So... I mean, that's a quick little overview of what I've discovered in the last couple of days of doing some background search <laughs> on you and certainly knowing you in the way that I have, which was mainly just as a sports coach. Um, I think it was, I spoke to mum about it and she's like, oh yeah, I think I remember dropping you off to a bus or something to him one time and um, something like that. And I think it's incredible. I mean, one thing that you can credit social media to is, you know, allowing us to stay connected, but I think it's also the people's ability to use social media to stay connected and then you know you reaching out to show me some things that you've been involved in that could um, possibly be of uh, assistance to what I'm doing. So I appreciate that. And yeah, really excited to have you on the Evocative Project to talk about your life and your journey and um, you know, all those things that I think I'm really on a journey with now is, you know, active listening and 
changing my thinking and opinions about certain topics. And I think I'm going to get into a few things about that today, but I guess that's enough for much an introduction from me. If, if you would like to jump on and take the mic for the next little while and explain your journey, I guess from a young fella into career and into what you're doing now, but we'll, uh, we'll move across different topics and stuff like that throughout to give, give great insight to our audience and to our listeners about your life and about some topics that I think are really going to be quite valuable in finding your why and active listening and reconciliation and those types of things. So yeah, thanks so much, Joel. And um, yeah, take it away. No worries, Blake. Thank you for the um, the kind introduction. So uh, most of it's true, I think. So, uh, but um yeah, I guess, and you know, you know, hearing that, I really uh, one of the things that I I do do these days, and, and I'm sure we'll touch on mental health, which is part of the reason why I, I am um, so looking forward to follow and have followed your journey since you know the evocative the shirt started a few years ago around providing profile for for up and coming artists, and then obviously the evolution into what the project has become, and um, you know, is under living in the here and now as well, and and managing you know the anxiety of past and. and 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 future so um you know i have lived a privileged life i very lucky to have been exposed and, and work where i have and exposed to the people i have and the communities i've worked with and um you know they're one of the things that i, I look back on um, regularly when i'm when i'm working through my own challenges is is to actually understand that um you know in the here and now things have, have been mostly really good and, and I'm, I'm privileged i think um to have been where I have and, and done what I've done. But yeah, as you said, I um, grew up in a small mining town, Mara, which is about two hours west of Rockhampton. Um, you know, well, back in those days, was the good old days of country towns, no such thing as drive in, drive out, fly in, fly out. So um, a really strong community feel, um, you know, walk around town, do what you like, make sure you're home for dinner. Um, grew up with a, a younger brother and um, mum and dad, they loved me dearly and, and um, you know, it was pre the, the uh, mining boom, so it certainly weren't the wages they were then, but um, mum and dad definitely did everything they could. Um, I don't remember ever – we didn't have lavish lifestyles, but I don't remember ever myself missing out. But um, I think I mentioned on the phone the other day, now that I've got little ones, um, I can certainly understand um, the amazing efforts they made to provide things for us, and not just a financial thing, but you know, time and effort and volunteering and every sport or activity we wanted to be part of. Because in those small towns, you know, volunteers are, and numbers are small. So if the parents aren't putting their hand up and doing it, it doesn't exist for the kids. And it didn't matter what we did. Somehow, mum and dad found their ways onto committees. You know, being coaches, being you know, and getting accredited to be able to run teams and and sports and um, you know. I think, um, well, my age is probably a bit different to your usual um, interviewees, which I've, I've listened to. Um, so I've got a fair bit more um, life experience, ups and downs. But, um, you know, as I grow older with my kids and understand the challenges of, of life itself, um, when you're not just thinking about yourself, that um, I really start to appreciate who they were, uh, who they are today and and um, the values that they installed on us and the opportunities they provide us. So, yeah, I grew up in a small town, long-winded. Um, basically mingled in at all the sports that were available. I was really lucky. My grandfather and grandmother had a cattle property. So um, school holidays were spent out there riding horses, swimming in creeks, um, 
And so you've got to experience the best of both worlds of um, you know, a little bit of urban living, but also that opportunity to to be a boy um, and just hang out and get be dirty and play you know play cricket, play footy. Um, I know you asked me for some tidbits. Uh, so my first sport was actually ballet. So um, yeah, we're very 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 much Billy Elliot back in the in the, in the coal mining town, but um, uh, it, it did happen. I think a- I was five and. I used to make a joke that my um, sisters were dancers and um, I used to say to my, I think it might have been my ex-partner, and I used to tell her, yeah, I used to um, do ballet and jazz and all that sort of stuff and she actually believed me for quite a period of time there. <laughs> uh, well, my mum's got evidence of me in a bananas and pyjamas outfit, so... Um, <laughs> So that was that. That morphed into karate, I think, and cricket and footy and horse riding. And then I guess the the big cha- first big change in my life was boarding school and and um, you know being in a small town and, and I was sports mad. Mum um, and dad made the financial sacrifice, but also I guess the emotional sacrifice um, to send me to, to boarding school. Um, it was a massive challenge for me. That not that my parents probably knew until um, my brother joined me a couple of years later how tough I did it the first probably year year or two. Um, but uh, you know, an amazing experience and um, you know created so many lifelong friendships and allowed me to explore um, anything I wanted to do. You know, Marrow is a great town, but there's probably you know by the time you get a teenage, only a couple of sports that had enough people there to to do. Whereas at a boarding school, I could do whatever I like, and um, every afternoon was touch footy, golf, cricket, whatever it was filled my boots and um you know and definitely that age I didn't understand I guess the financial repercussions but also um you know the emotional toll it took would have taken on them to to send me away and, and not spend you know every night with me and that sort of stuff and uh you know as I said having kids knowing uh, I share custody with my my oldest one and and um, understand that um, when they're not there it's 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 a big piece that's not 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 with you so um you know to understand what the sacrifice they made to send me away and was awesome. Um, it was about then that I met my first mentor. Um, so he was a, our PE teacher, um, but it ended up being our first rugby coach as well. And um, one of the most genuinely nice people that just wanted people to succeed. And um, fantastic footballer, probably we say as a teacher, he, he did enough, but um, from a role model and uh, a setting up so many of us, um, you know, we catch up regularly at our reunions and stuff and, and our conversations do return to him and, and the, the way he treated people and the way he made people feel. And, um, you know, we caught up again earlier this year. Unfortunately, he, he passed away, um, earlier this year, which was a shock to everyone at 52, but, um, the, I guess, um, it reinvigorated the person he was by the, by the multitude of outpourings and, and support that him and his family had. Um, so he, he was a, a massive role model of mine, Peter Bartlett. And then that's where rugby came in. And, and that was it. I decided that when I left school that, you know, my interest was sport and um, sport was it. So I um, and feel free to stop me if you've got any questions or, or whatever as we go. But um, went to university, did a sports degree, and I, um, I, I did it for a lot longer than you're supposed to, um, which is uh, something that happens in a lot of people's uni lives, I think. So the trappings of of being 18 and a bit of freedom away from boarding school, um, obviously, uh, extended by unity career. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, again, another lifetime of friends, a lifetime of experiences, 
Um, and then I was lucky enough when I finished school, oh, sorry, finished uni, that um, there's a rugby development officer position in Rocky straight away. Um, so I was able to to morph straight into that and, and combine my two loves. I was playing you know, rugby for a local rugby team and, and then working during the week, um, teaching kids to play rugby was like every dream come true. Um, and then a couple of years into that, um, I'd been lucky enough in the past um, to play for um, or be part of the Queensland under-19 and under-21 squads. I think I might have been just the token country kid that they picked and took down. But um, that opened some doors and I ended up touring um, England with the Australian uni team. And when I got back, I was like, yeah, wow, that's – I didn't even – as a country kid, I didn't get on my first plane until I was 18. Um, and then to travel to travel around Europe, oh, England for three weeks, I was like, I need – that's I need that I want I want to go back so I was lucky enough to pick up a, a sort of semi pro contract to go play over there and um, and continue um, to supplement that income with coaching in schools um, which was awesome um, so settled in a place called uh, South End on Sea um, probably your generation's probably seen a, a show called This Is Essex that's on uh, yeah. TV so that's in the middle of Essex so it's a it's a unique place. Um, 45 minutes east of London on the on the Thames. Um, it's known for uh, its pier. It's the longest pleasure pier in the world, I think. Um, yeah. But just uh, and I went there for one year to play some footy at a you know, reasonable high level. But um, you know, just to it was my base to travel. Um, you know, it was London Stansted, London Gatwick. We're 45 minutes in an hour and 20 minutes away. Heathrow was an hour and a half away, which basically gave you junction to the world and um, you know the Eurostar train as well, which takes you into Belgium and France and stuff. You know, it was an hour on a train away. So went for one, stayed for four um, and loved every minute of it. Um, really lucky to live the, the start. And that was probably the start of my, um, well, you spoke about active listening, but I guess my learning of, of um, my interest in developing who I am and mm. and uh, my ability to be an active listener by um, taking into consideration and learning from people from their own experiences, their own backgrounds. Um, so South on Sea, you know, at the rugby club, there was only one other Aussie and two Kiwis. Everyone else was English, Scottish, Welsh, South African. We had a German. Um, so it was really um, great to be able to integrate into, into their cultures um, and the English culture as well. And then um, the travel side of things where, um, you know, Come a, come a Friday RV in, in the summertime when there's no rugby on, Friday RV to an airport, fly out to somewhere for two days in a different country, which, um, you know, it was like traveling from Rocky to Brisbane, but, yeah. you know, to experience different cultures and yeah. and um, be exposed to it. And, you know, big wide eyes for, for a kid from a coal mining town in, in central Queensland. And um, it was amazing. Like it, it started my, um, personally, it started my um, my yearning and my, my need for, um constant learning and constant personal development. Um, but I was also lucky enough when I was there, um, we were doing some sports coaching in schools um, and we were working with a school in East London, which um, at the time and could be today, but before the Olympics was a really um, challenged neighbourhood. A lot of uh, migrants, a lot of overcrowding, a lot of crime, gangs. Um, so we were teaching at one of the primary schools there and we actually, actually with the principal use sport as a, an incentive tool. So that's, for them to do PE, they had to actively c contribute to their other other lessons. So they couldn't just sit there and be good or be quiet. They had to actively contribute and um, be part of it and, and 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 learning along the way. And then they'd be allowed to do PE. And um, you know, down the five six years down the track, um, that would then um, be my next journey, I guess. So, mm. um, so I came back in two thousand nine. 
uh, again, lucky enough, land on my feet, had a dream job with Queensland with Queensland Reds um, working in Cairns. Um, you know, one of the greatest places Queensland has to offer to live and was there for nine or 10 months and then um, got promoted to a, a regional manager's role in, in central Queensland. So I got to return home, which was awesome. Um, sort of looking after staff and programs from Early Beach to Gladstone and then out to Longreach. So and that's obviously where we first came along. Um, and that was, um, again, the our sideway or segue was um, the we had a partnership with what was Extrata Coal in those days, which mm. is Glen um, Glencore now um, at, a, at a community investment program in that um, by funding um, the programs out there, particularly in the Central Highlands, they're providing opportunities for kids and young people who without that funding may not have it. You know, we're able to pay for buses and, and coach education and all these sorts of things that were pre- prohibitive of, of sport out there or rugby. Um, and we are able to then deliver that and have kids play rugby and, um, you know, the academy birthed out of that and I started to understand um, I guess the corporate world's um, evolution as well into supporting communities at need and and identifying um, mechanisms for creating community well-being is basically it you know inclusiveness, opportunity to participate, um, opportunity to succeed and be successful and and, and improve uh, are all things that um, improve well-being for individuals but also communities and, and I guess that was it. Um, then moved to Extrata was great. I I didn't experience it in when you would have had Extrata. Then I think it would have gone to Glencore probably just as you started in two thousand and nine. Then no, just after I left two thousand twelve, they become two thousand thirteen. They become Glencore. Okay, so, yeah. Well, because yeah. we were a part of um, the Extrata tennis. Um, oh yes. So they sponsored our yes. tennis um, club. So I would have been that would have been two thousand and seven eight and nine was when i was in that um club and then they they ended up finishing that when i finished in 2009 and then started playing footy so yeah it's it's cool to see i mean you're at at that level involved in that um in that programming in rugby union but i'm sure there was someone similar in the tennis space i mean you might have even met them um that was a part of my junior you know tennis career i suppose um, and they, yeah. Yeah, they help fund uh, a lot of our little trips and tournaments and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool to see, yeah, that little journey there. And um, while I've got, while I've got you stopped on your incredible journey, I think um, something that you touched on there a bit earlier about, you know, diving into the travel world. And I think we spoke with Jans a few weeks ago and even talking to anyone that's done world's travel, talk about how, um, how important it is to go into different cultures and different communities and learn, see one, see how they live and put your, put yourself in perspective a little bit, but two, to see how their culture actually works, like bartering programs, um, government systems that are, I mean, we're pretty privileged here in Australia, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I'm not too sure about Europe. I'm pretty sure they're not too bad, but, you know, travel to some of those smaller countries and you really you get a pretty big insight for how valuable our life really is or how blessed we are in the life that we have in Australia. And I haven't done a great deal of travel, but I've done enough to realise that Australia, we are so blessed here, but there is a lot more. I think you can grow as a human and as an individual a lot by travelling. Would you agree with that? Oh, most definitely. And I guess... um 
what it is, is it can be humbling around understanding what actually is important for happiness as well. Um, and, then, and then other ways that you can grow your happiness. So as you say, you know, Egypt, um, massive and bartering, and, you know, such a foreign concept, but it's actually an enjoyable concept for them. And, and one of the um, locals that we had, they said, you know, so we're, starting at X and we're, you know, we're getting down 80%. They said, you know, don't feel bad. If they weren't going to make any money off it, they wouldn't set, they wouldn't agree to the sell. So bargain, bargain your ass off basically. And then yeah. you look at somewhere like Spain with siestas and those sorts of things, you know, how do you grind your day to a halt and then kick it back off again? But you know, you, you live it long enough. And lucky enough, I had a friend who was, um, he was um, coaching rugby over there, lived there for a couple of years and explained it. And, um, you know, even traveling in Australia to, to see, as you say, we are a privileged country, but there's also so much uh, destitution and, um, to, I guess, inadequacies in our, in our policies, particularly our past policies that have you know, created on, on lasting effects. But um, to understand, you know, what it makes people happy and, and what you need to be happy. It isn't about the big car and the big house and, you know, that's a, that's a gratification, but it's not true. I, you know, and different people are different again as well. You know, everyone's motivated and, and, and feels happy by different things, but um, you know, you start to understand that um, true happiness um, is, is personable um, and relatable to an individual, um, but also to be able to understand that and, and see where those connections lie for you. And for me, I, I, you know, it was really challenging in that rugby and sport had been my world for so long. Um, and then I got to a time where I just, I just fell out of love with it. I, it just burnt out being a rugby person on the weekend, talking about working in it, and then trying to understand what that um, next connection was and what was that, what was that next why, which is the the key of the conversation is what is what was that next why for for me and um you know and they and that changes now for me um from different days because there's so many elements to a to an adult's life that um, my my why is 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 consistent around um. You know that every year I want to look back and be a better person, and part of that was um, you know, managing my anxiety and and some of my mental health challenges around continually looking back and and um, criticizing the way I I'd done things or acted and being anxious about the things that were coming up. But in the end, as long as we're moving forward every year, then um, you know. And I would spoke to somebody about it. You know, same as anything you do, whether it's professional, sport, reading, drawing or as a person, if, if, if you're always improving, um, that's the most important thing. Um, there's going to be setbacks. You're going to do things that um, you're not proud of, or you could have done a different way. Um, but over the longitudinal study is um, over a length of time, as long as you're moving forward and, and um, meeting the criteria you set for yourself, then, then that's success. And that's, that's what you should be happy with. And, and for me, that's what it is. I want to, I want to be able to be a better, not a better person because what is that? Um, but um, by being a better professional, uh, being a, a more considerate and person and empathetic, and uh, I guess empathy is a, a funny one. You know, you can have um, uh, empathetic concern, which is understanding or feeling sympathy with someone. Um, you can have cognitive e empathy around um, an understanding of why they feel a certain way or anything. But um, uh, emotional empathy is probably the big one, which um, I struggle with because I don't have lived experience of um, a lot of challenges, um, you know, be it's um, particularly in my work life, you know, working with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, people with disability, LGBTIQ community, gender equity, they're things that I don't have lived experience of. And that's where that, you know, you mentioned earlier, the active listing piece is, is crucial. Is I can be um, 
you know, it, it, um, cognitively empathetic, but I can't be emotionally. So I need to be able to understand. I need to be able to listen um, and take as much as I can because I'll never get the full story because, you know, I, I don't know how it feels because I've never experienced, you know, racism, sexism, you know, homophobia and any of those things. Um, you know, dyslexia doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the big, you know, the, the main flagship ones, any, any challenge that anyone's ever faced. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough, apart from mental health. And even then I consider myself luck, lucky in that um, it's something I've been able to manage. Um, you know, I can only work on what the person is able to share, what I'm actually able to, to listen to and then connect with, and then come up with um, ways of support, I guess. So. Yeah, I really love that you went down the empathy path there. And I, it's something that is huge in what Evocative is doing now in the men's mental health space. Um, certainly, I mean, like you just touched on it brilliantly, the three, the three different aspects of empathy or three different categories of empathy. And I used to use the word empathy loosely, mainly, I guess, because the way I heard it used, I knew sort of what it, meant to me and it's like to have empathy was to care about people is loosely how I put it um and then I put yep. sympathy in a different category because I couldn't sympathize with someone because I, I like you said I didn't understand I hadn't lived ex- hadn't had lived experiences in those things and me 12 months ago I was oblivious to anxiety to stress to depression purely because of my understanding and certainly my education in those categories, but it's also the way I interpreted those things was, well, I don't have, I don't believe in anxiety because I don't know what it feels like. You know what I mean? I don't, but then this year I've learned that anxiety is a natural feeling. If you didn't have anxiety, you'd run in front of buses and you know, you, you jump yeah. off cliffs and you wouldn't have that natural response to danger. That didn't see that flag, that post that says you should probably stop because this is something that's of danger to you. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry. And the other thing with anxiety, you know, it, it's, you know, butterflies before performance. It's about um, high expect. It's about expectations of performance. If you don't have that feeling of, can I reach that level? Then what, what are you chasing? Like you're already at a level then. So yeah. um, I think, yeah, to, to your point, there is a healthy element of anxiety and I think it's essential to, continued improvement in whatever you're trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's certainly the, uh, the, de- the de- detrimental side of it as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess even on that, like Luke spoke about it last week and he really laid something on me. Um, Luke Mathers, as you said earlier, you might be the oldest one yet, but I don't think you are. Luke, <laughs> Luke might be a little bit older than you. So, um, and I certainly had a pretty extraordinary walk in life, but he spoke about anxiety and I'll, I'll relay what he said virtually was I'm almost sick of parents saying that my kids have anxiety issues. He said, he's, he said, they don't. He said, your kids are experienced the feeling of anxiety. He said, you don't go into the ocean like a cold swim and get out and say, oh, I'm such a cold person. You say, oh, I'm cold. You don't have a, you don't, say you're hungry and say i'm a um or how do you word it? like i don't have a problem have, with hunger. yeah have hungry, hungry. hunger issues yeah. yeah i feel hungry and said i said with anxiety said i believe that people should treat it more as i have a feeling of anxious anxiety or i'm anxious i feel anxious 
I'm not an anxious person. And I think it's that really stood out to me. And because that's how I guess I interpret it is, is I guess how I could take it as an angle of like, yes, it's a feeling, it's a thing and you ha- should have it, but not to make it part of your personality. And yeah, well, you, you, you just said that you've lived through some anxieties and stuff like that. How would you take, if I was to say that to you, how would you take that on board in, in your experience of anxiety and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I guess it's that negative connotation, isn't it? That, mm. um, you know, if you say someone's a an anxious person, then automatically in your mind, well, I envisage that they're, or I would feel that that's what I'm projecting to people all the time. Yeah. Now, when I've had mental health challenges and I feel anxiety is, is mainly minor depression, not so much anxiety, but I'm not anxious all the time. I'm not on edge yeah. all the time. Some people may be, but um, yeah, I just definitely think you need to, um, well, my, my preference if people were talking to me and, and if, if I'm talking about it is that it's, it's a moment, it's a moment piece. It's not a, mm. it's not a generalized character flaw. It's a, it's a, moment in time of how you're feeling um yeah. Yeah, i guess with you know you, you do it go the way you, know, you have a bad experience with someone you say well he's a fuckwit um but generally mate potentially not like and how, how how does that person feel if they're always referred to as that person if they've had a had a moment in time where you've you've made a judgment call on them it's the same with anxiety or depression you know mm. um you know I, that's my general feeling i don't know if it's are correct i don't know and other people will have different viewpoints on that but um i think yeah it's really important to treat um you know everybody in the in the moment and time and, and give them um that care or that that opportunity to work through what they need to work through um yeah. and then but treating them as a and seeing them as a, as a whole individual all the time because mm. um you know that's 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 the piece you don't want to be you don't want to be stereotyped you don't want that stigma and these are all the things that we're trying to break down so um by i guess labeling somebody as an anxious person you know we're putting a stigma on them so um rather than saying you know someone you know they ha- they have anxious moments or you know that's they they need sometimes they need to work through their anxiety that's that's something that they're progressing through rather than saying you know that's they're an anxious person that's you know that for me that's that's a stigma or a stereotype that it's labeling them as something that's different to everybody else so Mm, yeah and it's like the way he worded it too though is like i feel like add just a few words around it like i feel anxious or it's like okay i feel anxious about this situation or when i'm in this situation or in this scenario I have a feeling of fear. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just it's yeah, your, your language around that conversation and those words that have been so stereotyped and so I guess almost demoralizing um, really is a great way to progress through it as an individual. I was talking yeah. to someone the other day about his progression. He sort of spoke about his anxiety and working through that and, how he sort of lacked confidence in in the community and things like that. And then I was sort of just asking some other questions and sort of said, where do you live now? And what the journey that you sort of come on? And he said, oh, well, a few years ago, I was pretty much an alcoholic partying too much. And fast forward to now, I've got a wife, I've brought a house, I've relocated. I said, just take a second to look back on the journey that you've taken because it's easy to get, lost in the here and now you know what i mean everyone says let's live in the moment live in the moment but sometimes it's nice to look back on your past and realize and recognize how far you have come and i said just take a moment to recognize 
the person that you've become through that journey and be proud of that. And that should, cause he was talking about his lack of confidence. I said, do you think you three years ago and that, that person, that personality that you were there would have had confidence to do the things that you do now? And he sort of said, no. And I said, well, it'd be incredible to think that you have grown to this person of this level of confidence. Now that you can acknowledge that, that you've grown, how does that make you feel? It's like, oh, that's a really good way to look at it. Um, hmm. yeah, and I guess awesome. when, when you have a bit more confidence, I don't, I don't know, with the anxiety side of things, but that might potentially help you in avenues that you have that anxious feeling is because you aren't confident in it. You know what I mean? Um, like you yeah. said before, a performance enhancer is that butterfly, is that feeling of anxiety because you want to perform at your best. And so if you don't have that feeling, what are you aspiring to? What are your, you know what I mean? You've got to find that confidence to go that next level. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think you touched on a key point for, and I don't know the person you're talking about, but um, when you do face battles, you can be stuck in the just getting through stuff and just fighting for another day and everything like that. And it can take some, you know, it's hard to take a moment and then look at the big picture and say, oh, actually look at all these things I've done. And, and, you know, I touched on it earlier around um, understanding the privileged positions I've had. Uh, and sometimes I need to take stock of that. And you talking about it, um, reiterate that to me, but um, on a more important view point of view, it was um, around him as a, as a person who'd gone through some challenges and, you know, it took someone else to actually point out, Hey, take stock and stop the fight for a minute and just sit back and enjoy the journey you've been on and how far you've come, have a rest and, and, um, and then suit up for the, you know, for the next, next fight you've got, which, you know, we know they're always coming. So um, yeah, it's a really important point. That's, you know, a part of um, part of having that supportive connected uh, network, I guess, mm. is that, you know, uh, the biggest challenge, for, you know, I know we keep going back to mental health is the isolation piece that uh, not talking, not sharing, um, not wanting to be anyone's burden. Um, when sometimes, well, we all know that that's, that's what we need to do to get out of it. Um, you know, that, that um, having that one person or that one support network or that one technique that we can always go back to, to help us um, start to even the keel. And, and, you know, obviously that's, that was a big piece for him to, to actually take, have somebody say, Hey, hang on, just stop fighting for a moment and breathe and, and look at, look, look at, look at what you've achieved. So. Hey guys, I thought I would just jump in here quickly to promote last week's episode with Jansen Andre. So Jansen is actually running 160 kilometers on September 25th for Make A Wish Foundation. So what Evocative have done, we have teamed up with Jansen to help support him on that journey and help him raise some much, much needed funds for the children that are unfortunately not able to live their dreams, right? So Jansen's event is the Freedom for Future Children. And if you jump on the Evocative website and purchase any shirt, we are going to donate $15. But what's in it for you? is not only the feeling of helping these children through your purchase, you are also going to receive 15% off your total cart value. So 
If you use the promotional code JANS100, J-A-N-S-100, you will be getting that 15% off and also with every shirt you purchase. So if you purchase three shirts, you'll get 15% off that total price, but we will also donate $15 from each shirt, so $45. So thank you for listening, thank you for contributing, and thank you for supporting Jan's and his 160 kilometer run for Make-A-Wish Foundation. But for now, let's jump back into this incredible episode with Joel Johnson. You talked there too, um, Joel, about some of the cultures and stuff that you've worked in um, that really opened your eyes to that change and that diversity that people should reflect and um, we should look at and take a moment to recognise some of the, the journeys that people have gone on to have better understanding of the privileges that we have as Australians, but even just as humans in Australia. Um, so I'd really like for you to shine some light on, I guess, the Aboriginal culture that you've encountered on your journey, um, their separation from, I guess, when Australia was founded and how that actually impacted the communities that you were working with. Um, this one's a, it's, it's a tricky one for me. And I think if I was to encounter this question three months ago, I'd probably have a different view on it. Um, it's only been the last couple of months that I've really become open to changing my opinions, changing my thoughts, um, being open and being open-minded to thinking again, to, you know, having that curious humility to question my thoughts and what I, I was talking to my nanny, honestly, actually about this before this podcast. And I said, I was really excited to chat to you about it because I guess, yeah, it's something to, to be narrow-minded is one thing, but to have an opinion on something you know nothing about is pretty much the same thing, and it's toxic. Um, and I would nearly say I was racist in a sense, um, purely just because I had no friggin' idea. Um, so, yeah, if you could chat about that a little bit and your journey with, you know, you spoke about LGBT, I don't even know how to pronounce it, um, yeah, yeah, that one there. Um, you know, the Aboriginal cultures that you've been involved in through your sports and recreation stuff and reconciliation and yeah, shed some light on that journey, please. Yeah, no worries. So I I'll wrap up. So that was for the first half of my career, that sporty piece, and then what was next and um over variety at that point in time, um, sport had started to understand that um, from a values point of view, but also from an engagement point of view, they had a big, bigger part to play in society than just kids on the field and and started to look at um, through their corporate government partnerships, their um, players and their role models and their staff, how can they support social impacts and particularly around education, well-being, uh, employment uh, and all, and working with marginalised communities. And um, certainly, I'm, you know, I'll flag earlier, I'm, I'm no expert in any of the pillars we'll talk about, um, but I can talk about my experiences and my learnings and and the same with you. Um, you know, I'm a lot older and, um, you know, still the, our education system's probably got a long way to go, but we certainly didn't learn about past policies in Australia. Uh, we certainly didn't talk about Aboriginal culture and um, history and learnings and and uh, you know we spoke about World War Two and um, you know the history of America and those sorts of things. Um, so 
very uneducated, uh, very very inexperienced and exposure to that. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I grew up um, in a white Anglo-Saxon straight family. Um, over time, um, I became aware of a half brother who. Um, you know, we came into our lives when I was 12, uh, or we became aware of him when I was 12, um, who has Asperger's. Um, one of my cousins is um, a very gay, gay man. Um, and then through my work, I got exposure through um, a multitude of communities, which, um, really, you know, all those experiences then peaked um, into my why, which is learning, becoming a better person um, and becoming uh, a more well-rounded individual to, to be a listener and, uh, and, and um, have a positive impact on people around me. And so and it's, it's a hard journey to go on. Um, you know, I definitely look back now and sort of three or four years in, I become a soapbox, um, you know, agitator in that, you know, if anyone said a view against what I'd all of, all of a sudden be learnt, I was, you know, like an attack dog straight on them and very vocal around this and that and what should be right and what should be wrong. Whereas now, um, you know, I've, I've learned to understand that, um, again, it's based on people's experiences, um, their education, their exposures, um, and in the end also their own point of view. And some people are just going to see a round hole as a square hole and that's what it is and that's their prerogative. Um, you know, as long as they're not shouting from the rooftops or, um, you know, creating pain for other people or or a hurt for other people, then they can have their views and you can have a conversation about it. Um, so that was a real big learning for me to to go from the, what I thought was an advocate um, and really I was just the latest person on the uh, on the soapbox swinging from the trees without actually any idea, just regurgitating some stuff I just learned that someone had told me and um, through lived experience now understanding that um, the best form of advocacy is actually doing stuff and listening and um, reacting to those, that feedback and creating um, long lasting sustainable partnerships and programs, not fighting, you know, the person that you met at the pub who has a different opinion to you and arguing with them for three hours. And, but I think a lot of people would go through that because you, you think that's helping and you want to show that you're learning and it's part of you. You feel good about yourself that you're actually a better well-rounded person, but um, in the end, it doesn't help anyone or anything. So, um, so through the reds, uh, the cowboys, um, we started doing sport for development programs, um, using sport as uh, the avenue and the incentive to to make po- for young people to make positive choices around their education, um, their well-being, connecting with employers through the corporate partnerships, um, creating programs for families with kids with disabilities so that um, they get to experience. Um, every positive aspect that is community sport or community recreation programs and, and being part of clubs and having places to belong, not just, um, uh, you know, I got to meet a fantastic family um, down here in Brisbane, uh, the Elliott family who have gone on to, um, well, we were lucky enough to be part of a program they had a vision for and, and get that off the ground and um, be part of that and still have a, uh, a periphery um engagement with it because it is such an amazing program and I'm a supporter now. Um, they've taken that pilot program and, and uh, taken it to a level that um, no one could envisage and changing, you know, eight kids with um, learning and difficulties, um, particularly on the spectrum um, and at one club. And now it's, I think it's 300 kids across 12 clubs in three States, um, you know, and to be exposed to people like that who generally want to provide um, opportunities for um, their, their family, but also then families like theirs to, to um, have the opportunity that regular families have um, 
they morphed into government for a little while to, to learn the, the policy side of it because we all have it, our own sport and politics. I tell you, is, is the worst places to work because everyone's got an opinion, um, whether they know what they're talking about or not, because yeah. it's passion. Um, it relates to their community, um, particularly around you know sport and uh, politics. It's how it affects them and their lives and, and the communities that they love and all their clubs that they hold dear. And you know they don't survive without them, so we love them dearly for it. But they um, that is the place where you never um, you never never not know where you stand. Um, and um, so I went to government and worked in multicultural affairs and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander partnerships there and was lucky enough to do a secondment up on Thursday Island to Torres Strait, which was, you know, you talk about life experiences and and um, exposure to um, other ways to live. And that was probably the most tranquil place I've ever been. Um, amazingly happy people. Um, still with, you know, everyday challenges and 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 things that, all communities go through but um people who are so connected to their culture um so expressive um and welcoming of of new people and wanting to share their their culture uh, and just a way of life that um you know that uh, you, you're surrounded by um you know so many islands and and water that's you know even on a bad day's crystal blue and um you know people in Europe would pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go live on for two days. And yeah. that's where you live, you know, for your life. And then um, the last journey was, yeah, the Jonathan Thurston Academy and being part of a startup and um, sort of um, playing a part in Jonathan's vision for what he wanted to do and use his platform as a, you know, a, a well-celebrated leader, um, not only Indigenous communities, but um, all communities and across particularly the Eastern Seaboard and, um, who'd already done some great stuff and been recognised with the Human Rights Commission Medal with his stuff um, in Indigenous communities at the Cowboys, and then um, made the brave decision to that he, you know to create his own platform, and um, was lucky enough to to be part of that, um, establishing some programs up in the Cape and, and on, in the Torres region, and then um, now inland rail and you know one of the world's biggest infrastructure projects, and um, working um, in their social performance team, uh, which is a really new um career identified career so it's probably only come about in the mid to late 2000s that social forms came about and um really our roles basically um in the approval stage identifying all the impacts that the that um the project will have on the communities as uh, on the along the alignment both the the positive ones, which are you know employment and business opportunities, and but also um, any of the potential negative ones that, that might impact housing, accommodation, or community health and well-being. Um, so, looking at how do we work with identifying those with community, working on mitigation strategies to limit the any potential negative impacts, um, but working on strategies to really uh, maximise the positive impacts that can have on communities. So it's a really exciting piece that um, to work with so many communities across you know, a once-in-a-lifetime project that can, that's going to have an uh, uh, everlasting legacy, hopefully, for the benefit of Australia. And um, I guess, you know, that's a long story. You spoke about, the, I guess, the communities and cultures that I exposure to and, um, you know, a massive, um, I guess, and you hear people talk about, you know, I do my job because I want to do it for other people. And I find that it's a fallacy because if you're not doing something and getting something out of it, then why are you doing it? Like that, I, I find that as a, a negative connotation. So, um, you know, I get a great fulfillment um, and I'm not afraid to tell it that, you know, from a learning perspective to, to be able to connect with people 
because I've actually listened, um, because I try to understand, not that I do understand because I don't have lived experience, but um, the effort I make to, um, I guess, learn and listen and um, work together is where I pr- try and pride my, my work on, particularly when I was in the community um, engagement space. So, um, and giving them a voice is, is the other thing. You know, so very often probably told that, um, and particularly in Indigenous policy, that you know, government and um, white Australians for so long told them what they need. Um, I guess my prerogative was to wear as much as possible and um, I certainly didn't get it right every time. I still, to this day, don't get it right that I'm working collaboratively with the people on the ground who know their communities, who know their people. Um, and that was part of the learnings um, I learned at the Reds um, you know in our community space I think we we really did it really well um, around the diversity inclusion because we weren't the supposed experts in that space we weren't experts um, in the rugby space I think over time um, and this was a, a personal learning and really guided me um, I guess over the last seven or eight years and that because we were the Queensland Rugby Union we perceived ourselves as quite probably um, that we were the experts and you've got to make a decision. Um, but I think there's ways that we could have been much more considerate of our stakeholders, um, you know, our clubs, our schools uh, and our rusted on fans around how we do things, why we do things. Um, and I've take, tried to take that into um, the journey in the community space. And I think we touched on a phone call the other day that in the end, you, you don't, you're never going to appease everybody in when you do something that's, um, particularly when you're working in a community space where people are passionate about how it's going to affect them and they have views and stuff like that. Um, I think the really important piece that I've, I'm gradually learning is um, if you've got a, a meaningful um, collaboration with them or, or a meaningful um, conversation with them where they think, where they believe they've been heard, they felt like they've been heard and that their opinion's being considered, um, in the majority, whatever decision you land on, they will support it. When, it, when push comes to shove, it's when um, when people feel they haven't been given the, the respect, the due diligence, the ownership of something that's going to affect their community or their um, family that, um, that that's when you really can come across some struggles. And I guess that's something that I've tried to live by every day and that's where that active listening comes in and that yeah. um, open-minded go in um, and they might tell you the craziest thing in the world that you've never considered or you, you've pretty much wanted to shoot them down, but there's reasoning behind why they believe in that. And it's trying to understand what is it that they've been through, that they know that they have experienced um, that has led them to that, um, I guess, opinion or that viewpoint or that idea um, and trying to understand, connect with what it is that's driving them. So maybe the solution isn't the right idea that they've come up with, but the problem they've got is, is the is is the driving force so how do we as a collaborative then come up with with a way to to, to support um not, and it's not always for challenges it, it may be for things that they've identified that are going to be opportunities and successes so how do we levitate and grab and um you know grow on those and and they're the hardest thing they're the biggest learnings i've taken um taken some massive hits over time and um massive uh, i guess um particularly when i was in the rugby space you know take working 60 hour weeks, uh, working out of a hundred weekends, probably working 50, 60 weekends, getting paid half of what people in the corporate world get paid and, and to be, t- you know, and getting whacked over the, whacked over the, uh, with the big stick by, by the public. Um, every chance you got can be draining and challenging. Um, but 
again, it's about having humility to understand, well, actually, I'm part of the problem here. Yeah. You know, if I'm getting hit with the stick every week because people feel we're not listening or people feel we're not communicating, um, we're not doing it the right way for that community. Um, so we've got to be part of the problem. So how do we fix it and what can we do different? And, um, and that's part of, um, I guess, where um, my biggest learnings and, and I guess my fulfilment from working with different groups, be it um, you know, regional, you know, country people, different urban people, mm. the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, I've had a bit to do with Pacific communities, which um, massive learning opportunities as well. The LBGTIQ community you spoke about as well. Mm. Um, all different ways they um, gravitate, they communicate, um, and it's it's certainly, I guess, opened my ability, particularly from a professional world, um, to work in a collaborative way across a multitude of teams, um, particularly on big projects. You've got to work with everybody, so um, you've got to be able to to bring everyone um, eventually onto the onto a on a similar pathway. But even from a personal point of view, um, it's created a bit a lot. I'm a lot more measured in in who I am as a person. I think mm -hmm. a lot lot less reactionary. Um, which uh, you know, hopefully um, makes me a better partner, makes me a better father. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had some challenges through my relationships and, and all brought on by me. Um, many, you know, from decisions I made and inabilities to, to communicate clearly so um, and express who I am or how I'm feeling. So, um, you know, obviously hurt people along the way, but, um, you know, this stage of my life, I, you know, I think at 40, I have my, uh, I'm uh, starting to actually understand what life is supposed to look like from a, a well-rounded individual and, and um, you know, still make my mistakes daily. Um, but all in all, um, those exposures to a whole range of people, a whole range of careers um, um, and a whole range of whys or little whys that then always return back into um, building my my big why, which is um, how can I learn to be a better person, more well, not a better person, I, I cracked that earlier again, how do I continue to become uh, a well-rounded individual who can contribute positively to the people around them in um, their personal and professional lives, so. You become the best version of yourself, which is, yeah, you know, I, know. I think that's a beautiful thing to take away is, it's how I think Sarah spoke about a few episodes ago and to our listeners, it might, you know, bring back some memories, but it's how do you want to feel every day? You know what I mean? That's how do you like to be a better person means that you feel that you're a better person, which means you must be doing things that the community appreciate or that you believe are things that the community appreciate. And you, uh, you, you said the other day on the phone call, active listening is listen equals heard equals happy. And I, um, I really love that one. And I had a big question here, which was about active listening and yeah. it was about <clears throat> how you've invested a lot of time, which you've definitely spoke about, um, in your career and your professional world. And then how you've actually taken that active listening skills. And maybe if you could highlight a, a specific skill in communication, because I'd certainly love to know is how you, you can become, in a conversation with someone let's let's say it's you know COVID or something like that and you you want to get the vaccine and you're talking to someone that doesn't how do you become <laughs> <laughs> it's a can of worms yeah. but it, it's a, such yeah. a common conversation 
how can we become better from your experience? Um, and as you, as you would say, not a, a professional point of view, but certainly through learned experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How would you how would you give a tip or something like that in in approaching an, an active listening conversation so we can become better in that environment, which like you said, it's helped you in your friendships, it's helped you in your relationships, and it's helped you even as an individual in your own personal endeavours. Um, yeah. Just touching a tip uh, with you about yeah, how you could actually yeah. approach an active listening conversation. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing I'll say about active listening or, or good community consultation, it's fucking tiring. It takes everything out of you because it's such a journey, such a um, never-ending cycle of making sure you've got everything covered from from everywhere um, to the actual process of active living, listening. And I guess it's just a, I'm sure, I know it's a, pr- a proper term, but yeah, you know, in uh, my objective i guess is is going in with it with uh an open you know it sounds a bit wanky but an open mind you know mm. if you start a conversation with someone and it doesn't go the way you think it's going then you've got to throw all your preconceptions out the idea out the out the window and just go back to to listening to them and get to the root of um why they believe so strongly and what they're talking about because mm. um you know if if at the same time they're talking you're trying to work out how to counteract that argument then you're not actually listening because you're trying you're trying to to impart your preconceptions or your ideas onto them rather than actually listening to what they're actually saying. All you're hearing is different, 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 rather than actually what is it they're trying to say, um, why are they saying it, and then asking. And you know, it's the old adage of um, what do you do on a first date? You ask questions. You don't talk about yourself, do you? Like that's that's a success, isn't it? That they tell you that you show interest in other people, idea. and it's a, that's what you used to tell me at those reds camps all those years ago. Oh yeah, so, I, was, I was good at dating back then. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it. I guess yeah, it's having the. I guess the 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 um, patience for that. Well, not the patience, but I guess the humility not that you aren't right. Mm. So just throw it out. Let it go. Let it go for just for a moment. That You may still be right um, and you've got your own opinion. So you, you both probably end up being right because you've got your own opinions. But um, if you're trying to impart your – and this is what I touched on earlier about when I used to get – when I first started to move into, the, I guess, the, the diversity um, – social impact space where I used to get straight on my soapbox and shout down anyone who had a different a different opinion. I wasn't listening at all and all I became just someone that was just opinionated. Um, that, yeah, when you sit down with someone, um, you've got to, and so, you know, it's not always a difficult conversation. A lot of the time you have a conversation, you'll end up on the same path, but when it doesn't start to go in a direction that you're not comfortable with or you don't, you, that's not in line with what you're thinking, um, You've got to take a moment to take that step back, allow and then allow them to come forward so that you can really understand what they're talking about. And as I said, if you're busy in your mind trying to counteract their arguments, then there's no way in the world you're listening because um, you know you can't be having three conversations at once. So would you um, say you've got to remove? That, that, sorry, would you say? You no, would, so that would be <laughs> you go. You you, you go. Oh, sorry. You hang up. Um, would you say you almost have to like remove your emotions yeah 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 Yeah. and i and i guess um yeah and that's i I think i spoke about um my personality these days is 
and not that I've ever been a firecracker, but um, you know, I'm very, much more measured. Um, so um, it helps me in my professional life that um, you know we, I don't butt as heads with a lot of people as much mm-hmm. as I do. Um, personally, it helps me with um, my relationships personally. You know, across my friends, my family, uh, my partner. In that, when there is a disagreement, I'm not firing back and protecting my my right to the way I've acted or the way I perceive that they've acted, that I'm actually just taking a moment for people to express how they feel. Um, and then how do we move forward from there? And and what is that conversation? And it doesn't always happen, but sometimes people have to do active listening on me because I've just lost my shit. But, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I would say is that's, um, that's the biggest thing I've taken into uh, the last couple of years is yeah that um, that ability to remo- as you say I know you probably summed up really well is remove emotion out of the conversation, mm. um, and remove and as I said remove the uh, the need to be right right then and there let it mm. let, let listen let yeah and under- learn learn and and um, understand what where they're coming from um, and then how do you move forward from there you know, is it from a professional point of view what is What's the item they've identified? Whether it's a positive idea or an opportunity, or is it a is it a problem or a challenge? Um, and then what is it? What's driving that? What, where have they come come from with that? And then how do you work on? Um, you know, if it's a positive element, how do you exasperate and maximise and leverage that? Or if it's a challenge, then how are we mitigating or how are we minimising or or um, overcoming that challenge or that issue? So yeah. Didn't really give you the short answer, but um, no, no, I never. I give the short answers. You got to give the long answers. That's what's going <laughs> about here, but I get to sit back and just enjoy it. Uh, in all yes. your journeys, Joel, um, and experiences, what would one of your highlights be? I mean, you've probably come across some incredible people, some incredible projects. What's something that you take away that yes, you look back and you say, "Yeah, fuck, I'm proud of being a part of that," or that was really, really cool. Yeah, I guess um, oh, there's probably uh, there's probably two, yeah. um, and one is a disability program we we spoke about, and that was um, that a real learning for rugby? yeah. So we had the Elliot family come in and yeah. and identify that they wanted their young young person Max who. Um, has cognitive learning difficulties. Um, he'd really can't when the, with his PT sessions. Had really um, connected with rugby with his PT teacher, who would actually a guy who um, would go on and play a couple of games for the Reds. Um, he just connected with it with him and his little mate, and they used to call it um, Max and Jake Rugby, which is just in their little PT sessions. And they came and said, "Listen, we're actually a rugby family, um, and while we want um, we see that good for Max from a." participation from a physical development point of view, what we really want is something that um, allows us as a family to connect with all the good things that a rugby club has. And you can transfer that into any club, you know, sporting, recreation, what dance, whatever it might be, but that connection of being part of something, being surrounded by people who have the same, you know, care and interests as you and, um, I guess one of the things that they highlighted, which you know, I had never considered, was that a lot of disability programs are run isolated from clubs. You know, they're usually run by organisations or you know, they're, they're done separately. And, and so their vision was to create a program where Max would go to a rugby club that kids at his school would go to. They wear the same jerseys, they train at the same time, 
um, and they play at the same time. So when they go to school, when they're having a run around afterwards, they're all part of the same story, the same experience. Uh, and from a long-term objective, um, their greatest fear is where does Max connect to um, when they're gone? And so they said, you know, their values are their their rugby friends from as rugby families. Um, all, a lot of their friends are rugby people, and that's where they go back to. They have a beer or a barbecue, or watch, you know, spend us had the RV, and they thought that would be something that families and young people might connect to. So they came with this massive vision, um, and then it was how do we actually create it? And uh, one of the things that um, we were really keen from from a sporting point of view is to, if we were to for the kids to showcase and feel part of the same jersey, the same you know the same thing that their other friends are participating in, then the game had to look like rugby. Um, because they could be doing something that's completely different, and then the other kids, you know, kids are kids, they'll pick up on it and say, "Well, that's not rugby. You're not do- you're not actually doing rugby." And then yeah. that's a whole different can of worms. So we worked with them, and we had a bloke from the Australian Rugby who was awesome as well. Um, we lent on Sporting Wheelies Association yeah. um, around um, their adaptability around other sports and what what yeah. they'd seen, and we basically created a game of, of tag rugby, but still looked like rugby. It still had the same essence of scoring tries, moving forward, moving the ball. Um, and the big difference was um, each participant would have a, a mentor who's a teenager um, from, from the club or from a local school. And that was um, to link in that um, from a learning point of view, um, from, from a teaching point of view, each kid had their own challenges and their own reactions to change. Um, so by, you know, if they had a reaction, they stormed off the field, um, the coach wouldn't have to try and manipulate two situations, that mentor could go with that young person, help them settle, get back to their happy space, then get them back on the field and away we go. Um, and one of the big fears we had was, well, where are we going to find eight teenagers, you know, all got the bad rap that they only care about themselves to look up, to work with these kids every twice a week, every week for, you know. So anyway, we found eight and they're amazing. And so they, and they've, um, the Ginger Cloud Foundation, which it's established, um, then built a mentoring program around that. So they got learnings. So they do online workshops around leadership and all those sorts of things. So they're getting their own learning out of that. Um, and over time, um, it's, as I said, it's growing. It's, um, what is it? I think it's 30-odd uh, clubs across three states. Now there's three or 400 participants um, who every day um, or every week get to participate and be part of um the strengths are of a community club, I guess. Um, and not only that, we've then got 300 um, teenagers who are going through leadership modules and understanding um, the greater good, contributing to young people's lives, which is contributing to their well-being, um, which is awesome. Um, and to see that and to continue to see that grow, and it's now seeing that you know those younger kids, they Max's first group. Um, you know, Max is now work, at working age, and he's working at the rugby club and doing a, a, a taste to get as a chef, like. Um, and I hope Megan and Anthony don't mind me sharing. Um, but you know, when he was little, they, they were told he would be nonverbal. Um, and then through their care and their sacrifices and their willingness to, and not just the rugby, but all the other parts of life, you know, now here he is, um, you know, trained to be a chef at the rugby club where they had this vision that one day down the track they would see their teenage son. Um, you know, that was the dream and now it's a reality for them, which is awesome. Like um, to have been part of that journey and um, be, to be um, right place, right time. Um, you know, that I was in that job at that point in time um, when they come in with that idea and the drive to make it happen and then to be part of it was, was awesome. Um, the other part um, we started a program at the 
Red's um, Future Indigenous Leaders Program with a partnership with Rio Tinto, which was working with communities in Cherbourg and Warabinda uh, to incentivize positive kids to make positive choices. And originally it was sort of looking at being a program for kids that were coming off the rails. And, um, and this is where that community engagement um, and that ownership came in. In speaking to the elders, the school staff, the mums and dads, the councils in those communities, I said, we've, we've got programs for the kids that are making the wrong decisions. What we want is programs to support our kids who have potential to go on to great things so they can be the role models for the next generations. Because what we're seeing um, is a lot of kids who are on the fence are making the wrong decision because they get to go and do the fun stuff or do the activities in the, in the, in the disengage program. What we want is those kids who have potential and doesn't have to be academic. Um, it could just be leadership potential. So the kid who, um, you know, has all the followers behind them, let's incentivize them to be a positive leader rather than, the bad leader sort of thing. So we were choosing five or six kids from each community, each community each year um, with the commitment we would then follow them through um, their journey of, of school. So from primary school and the secondary, um, which is a big cha- change for a young person, particularly those that would go to boarding school as well. So we'd follow them. Um, and then eventually the, the transition from school into university, TAFE, employment, whatever after school looked like. So um, going on an eight year journey, basically. And um, I was there for the first sort of five years. Um, and in that time, we then made the commitment that we would um, create a scholarship for some of those kids that we would who had an interest to go to boarding school but didn't have the financial means or the support networks to get there. Um, so we created a, um, with some corporate funding, we created a scholarship um, and um, found uh, support an amazing young man from Warabinda um, to attend Toowoomba Grammar School. Um, had a number of challenges along the way, but um, proud to say with that support, the support he had a um, two family supports, so his own family and then um, a family that was the principal of the school at the time. They took him under their wing as well, which is um, you know an astounding thing to, to see as well that he became part of their two families, um, you know, a black family and a white family, and um, to see those two families work together for the best outcome for that young man um, and for him now to go on he's left school and he's got a trade and um, you know to be part of that and see him from a 10 year old little kid who half smart but had all the potential in the world as a as a young leader um, to go on and um, you know graduate school um, leave home you know he's permanently set up in Toowoomba now got a trade and and um, you know, a successful role model for the next generation so I guess they're the two things that um, uh, a privilege to be part of and um, yeah, certainly not the leader of it um, was in the right top place at the right time um, with the capacity to be able to support those dreams, I guess, particularly in the modified rugby pr- space. And then um, on the flip side, um, having the resourcing of Rio Tinto to be able to bring those programs to life. And, um, and then, um, as I said, be able to create a program that um, the communities saw as a, a need, you know, or to service a, a need um, or an opportunity, I guess, is what they saw as where you want support. Yes, we need support for the kids who are making the wrong decisions or at risk of making the wrong decisions. But for us to succeed as a community, like any community, we need role models. We need young people becoming the best as they can be and, and finding their why and and reaching their potential so they inspire the next group and the next group and the next group. And, and um, you know, f- to be able to hand on heart say that that was a program that was designed or 
the people, the, the cohorts we work with was it was um, was in alignment with the community's values and the community's vision. Um, their futures was was something that was pretty um, pretty good to look back on. So and um, yeah, I um, for all the listeners, I haven't stopped smiling the last ten minutes. <laughs> Those stories, man, you need to take a little bit more um, pride, or, I guess, in or. It's, it's one thing to be very humble, but you should be very proud of those jobs, man. I think you, you certainly are without saying it, um, which is why they were your highlight moments, man. But that's fucking incredible. Like, you've changed people's lives and, well, those those programs with your help have, have changed people's lives forever. I think even for that modified rugby, not just the um, disprivileged or disabled children that were able to have that opportunity to play, but... I was thinking if I was a kid that was given an opportunity at 14 years old to be a little mentor for one of those guys, like that would change my life. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And that's, yeah. The, the vision that the Elliot's had, I guess. And we had some stumbling blocks early. We, we butted heads around and that was partly um, my thing again about, well, we're not getting enough credit out of that. You know, we're doing all this work and not getting enough. I felt we're getting enough credit when, realistically we were getting plenty of good credit for it because we're doing something we'd never done before yeah. on the back of someone else's idea. Like we were actually yeah. killing it. Um, and that was my immaturity and that that's mm. that same soapbox sort of um, time in my life where I was trying to, um, well, I felt like I had to shout from the rooftops all the mm. time, but sitting now, as you say, I am proud of the part I played definitely. And, and I uh, continue to support. We try and get to the, their annuals, um, their annual fundraiser every year and just to see the growth and hear the stories and, and to understand, you know, even I think Megan and Anthony would be, I know they're humbled by what's actually been achieved and, um, you know, their drive is something that I've never seen before. Um, you know, what they've achieved um, as a family, but also to drive that through um, three states, you know, through COVID, all those sorts of things. And as I said, the whole, um, the mechanisms of, you know, kids with disability, a whole range of families who, you know, never in their wildest dreams thought their kid would play sport because they had no interest in it. But they'd heard this these great stories from other families about the connectedness and the and the improvements they'd seen in their young people um, through that sense of belonging, um, not only for the kids with with the learning difficulties, but also the mentors and and seeing those kids come on board and um, them as leaders go from mentors into coaches into actually running the programs at the clubs and, you know, that sort of thing, or hearing stories where the two families go out to dinner after training every Thursday night. And, you know, they're just, um, yeah, they're really heartwarming. And, That's um, heartwarming stuff, man. Yeah. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, privilege that's, part of that. yeah, that's wicked. Yeah. I would love to friggin' meet those Elliot family. They sound incredible as well. What yeah, a- mate. I'll uh, actually, Megan and Anthony, you have to get them both on. Again, um, peas in a pod. So Megan's, yeah. Um, high energy, um, right out there, driving it, and, and Anthony's the the measured sort of. He's the collaborator at the back, and okay. you know they're um, they make a really you know they they make a really great team. Um, you know the mm. different personal same passions, different personalities. Um, yeah, but um, that's what you need, and you know that diver- it's the same in a business. You need that diversity of of uh, at, um, elements and attributes, and um, you know the, it'd be. Yeah, if you want to get them on and um, you, know, you talk about well-being and mental health challenges and um, you know, seeing progressions as a you know from a even from their own family point of view, 
um i yeah highly recommend him even it's just a just as a um an experience and a, and a networker so um but you're happy yeah. to provide that introduction that would be incredible. Well, I think, yeah, you just said that um, the two personality traits are, are vital, but with the one passion, it's exactly what me and Kyle are in Evocative. We've established that. We're yeah, very, yeah. very um, I, I listened to his the other day. I was like, he's um, he's a little bit normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me cool. Yeah, he's, yeah he speaks um, really well. So, um, yeah, good. as you say, same thing, the yin and the yang and, um, you know, if we were all the same, geez, we'd be boring. So, um, oh, well, yeah, if we we're all like me, we wouldn't be boring. All. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's inter- interesting. You mentioned that, you know, you touched on that. It's completely different. But, um, you know, I remember probably 10 years ago, we, uh, you know, we'd get in a group, uh, I won't say the organization, but we'd get in a meeting and we'd, um, throw out ideas and who should be involved. And we'd be like, well, they just don't get it. They don't get it. So we don't have them in the meeting. So that we'd go into the meeting. We'd all have the same idea. We'd confirm it. We'd lock it in, in 10 minutes and leave and think we'd done a really good job. And then, you know, it's now that you see that, you know, if you can come up with a solution to something in a room in 10 minutes, then you haven't got the right people in the room because you're not seeing it from all angles. And it's those people that see it differently. They're the ones, um, that ensure that you explore all avenues and that you've discussed everything um, and had a look at it from all angles and all experiences. And that way, you know, it might take you, um, you know, four times the time to get to the solution, but at least then you've actually got a semblance of the right solution because you've had people in the, in the room to um, express and bring a different point of view to, to whatever you are discussing. So um you know, that whole diversity of thought thing, I'm a big believer in that as well from a professional point of view. Mm. So. Well, I think it comes back to that active listening. You you don't just voice a, a group of one opinion. You get all these other objectives that make you open your mind to different, you know, impacts and changes and challenges and positivities in that whole conversation. And, yeah, that's, yeah, it's been really fucking fascinating to listen to your story today, Joel. Um, I think there's some incredible insight there for our listeners with active listening, with just through everyday life, how we can, we can stop. And for you to stop now and actually talk about your journey that you've been on and you touched before this podcast this is your first one you've ever done. And we've popped the cherry. Um, yeah. but I think it would have been really nice for you to, you know, retrace those steps and relive those moments, you know, with those hero moments and the person that you've become through doing those incredible incentives. And in wrapping up today, I would, I would love for you to um, give our listeners, it's a bit of a trait we have here on the Evocative Project of um, giving our listeners a, a tip in in searching for their why. So what would that be from, from Joel Johnson? Um, well, looking at my career and my personal life is don't be desperate to find it. It'll come. Uh, I guess... Um, mm. You don't have to have your why straight away, um, and it might evolve over time. Uh, you know, as I said, I'm now in a social. My why is, you know, it hit me pretty much when I when I toured. Uh, so I was 23, 24 when I went to, to England for that three weeks with the uni team, and um, it was about um, understanding that was that was my moment. I was 23, 24. Uh, that you know, there was I wanted to be more well-rounded. I wanted to experience stuff. Um, and then it probably wasn't for another 10 years that actually hit home that, um, professionally, this was, that was really important to me as well, as well as personally. And, um, you know, that, that, so, you know, I was 30, 
30. So, um, you know, that's just keep moving forward. It's the same advice we give to young people when we talk about the employment programs. Um, you know, what you're meant to do and what you are passionate to do may not exist yet because the world evolves at such a speed now. Um, you know, you talk about the social performance space, it's only 14 years old and that's where I am now. Like it didn't exist when I left uni and started. So um, having a why is important, I think, um, but don't be in a rush to find the wrong why. Um, be patient enough that, um, you know, follow your passions and then eventually there'll be a, there'll be a light bulb moment, I think. And I don't know if that's what you want to hear, but, um, you know, I had two, I've had two light bulb moments. I've always, I followed my passions, sport, you know, and that sort of stuff. But, um, my eventual wise, you know, popped up, you know, um, personally and professionally at two different parts of, parts of my life. And, um, but they've, you know, set me on the thing now. So I guess it's not so much for those that have their why it's those that don't have the why don't feel like you're, um, you're incomplete or anything like that. Maybe you just haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to your why yet, or it hasn't, um, it hasn't hit you yet. So, I no, I reckon that's brilliant because, and I think your your why does change a little bit. I know my first why, I live it now, and certainly my second why, which is you know the presence of mental health space and what I'm doing now as well. I suppose <clears throat> they're totally different. You know, one was very self centered in a sense, but that self centered why allowed me in a personal life to then take it into a professional and and business life. And I think I really I really like that how it's yeah delivered is have patience and don't force yourself upon something just because you feel that you have to, you know, have patience to find it and then patience to live it. Right. Mm. Well, it's a bit like active listening. Mm. Don't, for, don't force it. Take your time. Uh, you don't have to create conflict or co- co- create a confrontation that um, you take your time and, and uh, listen and take in what's around you, then eventually you'll, you'll learn a few things. So. Beautiful, Joel. Mate, thank you so, so much for um, sharing your wisdom and sharing your story today on the Evocative Project as our second oldest listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a great pleasure to, you know, be your friend. And it's been, I mean, it's, it, I reckon it's quite cool to see the progression through, you know, me as a, junior football player and athlete, I suppose you could nearly call it. And then now into an adulthood where, you know, we have stayed connected and um, really feel the need to conversate and stuff like that. I reckon it's fucking beautiful. So thanks for staying in touch and in my life and thanks for everything that you have done in your career. Um, You touched on some highlight moments there, but I'm sure you've touched a lot more people in your journey, in your um, different communities and stuff as well. So I know you certainly helped me in my early early stages of sporting and um, adulthood. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us today on the Evocative Project. No worries, Blake. Uh, pleasure to um, follow your journey and, and wish you guys all the well with what you're doing. It's um, certainly something that um, we all need and um, really excited to see where the next journey takes you. So. Me too, bro. Thanks so much. See you, mate. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you so, so much for listening 
to this week's episode with the incredible, humble, and um, great man that is Joel Johnson. Now, I know I have taken two pages of notes here about Joel, certainly on his journey, just to pull away simple takeaways and relatable topics that he touches on, but some things that may have stood out to you, but certainly stood out to me were how he was able to shine a light on Aboriginal cultures through his corporate and government partnerships with players and staff and how they were able to support social impacts around education, employment and inclusion through corporate processes to all stakeholders. Um, How just through natural professional progression in his life, he was able to identify his great skill for active listening and which has now placed him into a very important role with globally one of the biggest rail projects happening um, in in, in our generation. So um, very humbling to see Joel progress through life and um, certainly from what was once my rugby union coach into now um, someone that I look up to in the business world and certainly in the active listening space as well. So I think it's a great little tip that he gives at the end too that you would have just heard about finding your why and relaxing through that process and not, not pressuring yourself to find it. I think that's also a very, very valuable message from Joel today. So thank you so much again for listening and please note that There is only a couple of weeks left of our promotional code JANS100, which is the $15 off your cart value where we donate also $15 to JANS and his Make-A-Wish Foundation run coming up very soon. So please jump on that. There will be a link in the show notes and there will also be some links to Joel Johnson's platforms as well. So Thank you again, and I'm very excited to bring you some more incredible guests next time we meet on The Evocative Project.